Okay, so um, as you know, we've been working through the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. So this morning, we're in chapter four, dealing with creation. So I worked through a lot of material by, um, or commentary by James Renahan and Samuel Waldron, and their thoughts and commentary on this have been very helpful. So I'll be drawing from them uh, a bit as we work through our study. <clears throat> so I want to start by giving us a, a context of chapter four within the confession. <clears throat> the men who edited the confession didn't view it as separate pieces sort of just put together, but they viewed it as one book, one book together with um, a, a flow, and they put it that way for a reason. Chapter four is specifically where it is in the confession, not by accident, but intentionally. So the first few chapters of the confession sort of lay out for us a foundation that will follow in the rest of the confession. So what you see earlier in the confession becomes a foundation for what you see later in the confession. And there's this sort of stream running through the confession. <clears throat> and the confession was put together in such a way where you'll see this relationship. So uh, something in chapter 12 will be expounded upon um, by something in chapter 3. Or something in chapter 22 will bring out something you see in chapter 1. You'll see that there's this stream of thought throughout the confession. What's said earlier will be referred to later and expounded upon. So you could almost view the confession as a house, and the foundation of the confession are the first few chapters of the confession, of the Holy Scriptures, of the Holy Trinity, the decrees of God, creation, providence, the fall, and God's covenant become the foundation for the rest of the confession. And again, it was put together that way on purpose. And so I want to spend a few minutes talking specifically about the importance of the confession and the importance of specifically chapter four in the confession and why it's placed where it is. Okay, and I'm gonna do that by sort of uh, doing an overview really quick of the first uh, three, four chapters, okay? So Pastor Ron walked through chapter one of the confession a few weeks ago. And as he walked through the confession, you'll notice in paragraph one of chapter one that the confession speaks of creation. In other words, it assumes creation and it calls it the light of nature and the work of creation and providence. All of that is a reference to creation. So creation manifests or it shows forth or proclaims the, good, the goodness, wisdom, and power of God. It's sufficient to leave men without excuse, but it's not sufficient to save men. Creation is sufficient to leave men without excuse, so it strips them of the excuse that Oh, I, I didn't know. It strips them of that excuse, um, but it's not enough to save them. So chapter one addresses special revelation, the need for spe special revelation, uh, which is God speaking. But it also speaks about general revelation. And in speaking about general revelation, it assumes creation. If you look at chapter two of the confession, you'll see another way that it assumes creation. It talks about the triune God and says that God is in himself all sufficient. God is in himself all sufficient. It says that he does not need anything in creation. He doesn't need anything outside of himself. That's what it means for God to be God. He's not dependent upon anything outside of himself to be God. He doesn't even need creation to be glorious. God doesn't need creation to be glorious. 
So God's not glorious because he created something and that thing he created gives him glory, right? So that doesn't make him glorious. And we have to be careful uh, because when we talk about this, depending on the words we use and how we communicate it, we can com communicate this idea that says that God is only glorious if what he has made shows his glory. God is only glorious if creation displays his glory. But is that true? No, it's not true. And that's why chapter two of the confession says that he doesn't derive his glory from what? Creation. But he chooses to demonstrate his glory through creation, but he does not need his creation in order to be glorious. God in and of himself, he, he doesn't need anything outside of himself in order to be God. Okay, so <clears throat> just be mindful of um, how you think about that in the language you use to communicate it. God is glorious in and of himself. What about chapter three? Uh, chapter three brings out um, the decree of God, which Will spoke about last week. So again, I'm trying to show us, I'm trying to give us a context of chapter four within the confession and show how all of these chapters and the sort of those first few chapters um, assume creation. So chapter three. So <clears throat> uh, you have chapter one that speaks of uh, the Holy Scriptures and special revelation and general revelation or creation and how it would manifest the glory of God. And then you have chapter two that deals with the triune God who is who in creation has determined to display his glory. But then you have chapter three that talks about the decrees of God. And the question you have to think about when you come to this chapter that talks about God's decrees is how does God choose to execute or carry out those decrees that chapter three talks about? Chapter three talks about the decrees of God, which are eternal and in God, but how does God choose to execute or carry out those decrees? What's the bridge between the eternal decrees of God and the manifestation or carrying out of those decrees? That's a good question to ask yourself. <clears throat> Well, um, a lot of men uh, sign the, the confession. If you, um, if you have a copy of the confession, some copies have the sort of list of men who signed the confession, pastors and messengers from, from different churches. Uh, one of these pastors is a man named Benjamin Keish. Uh, Benjamin Keish. So he was a pastor um, at a church, and he was one of the many um, signers of the confession. Over 100 and I think seven different particular Baptist churches signed and affirmed the confession. But this pastor, Benjamin Keish, also actually put out or um, formulated a Baptist catechism. And so this catechism, this Baptist catechism, is sort of like a mini confession. Um, if you have a Baptist catechism that uh, Keish put out, or Keish and other men put out, at the beginning of it, it, it talks about the catechism and the usefulness of the catechism. And it's interesting because it says we have made use of, and I think there they're talking about the Westminster Catechism. There's a lot of uh, similarity between Westminster and the 1689, uh, those two confessions of faith. But he talks, talks about the catechism and says that we found this catechism very useful, um, sort of as a mini confession. It became a way for us to memorize, know, understand, and proclaim biblical truth. And it was in the form of a small catechism, a mini confession. And one of the ways that 
you see uh, the catechism being used is actually an answer to our question. So in the Baptist catechism in question 11, it actually answers the question we're asking right now. It answers the question, how does God execute his decrees? So listen to the answer to that question from the Baptist catechism. It says, God executes his decrees, how? And the works of creation and providence. God execute his, executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. <clears throat> so the bridge between the decrees of God, the eternal decrees of God, and the execution or carrying out of those decrees is creation and providence. And where, does, and where do we see the confession dealing with providence? It's actually right in the next chapter, chapter 5. Today we're in chapter 4 on creation. Providence is dealt with in chapter 5. So it makes sense that chapter 4 of creation is placed right after chapter 3 of God's decrees and right before chapter 5 of providence. Right? So again, these, uh, the editors of the confession uh, put it together in a certain way so that we sort of see the thread that runs through the confession. Even the gospel itself assumes creation. It assumes a historical Adam who represented all mankind and actually fell, which makes redemption necessary. So Genesis 3.15, which is the gospel in seed form, becomes the theme and thread that runs throughout all of scripture. So all of creation, and when I say creation, I'm referring to everything that's made. Everything not God is creation. So all creation, everything that's made, is about God sending the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent for the manifestation of his glory through the redemption of his elect. That's what this is all about. <laughs> That's what creation is all about. Everything in the cosmos, from, every, from the beetle to uh, planets to human beings, uh, it's all about the, just the manifestation of the glory of God um, in his eternal decrees. If you don't assume creation and Genesis as historical narrative, there is no gospel. If you don't assume it, there is no gospel, okay? And we'll talk about that a little more later. <clears throat> and specifically in chapter 7 when we, get to, when we get to the chapter of the covenant, which is looking forward to. Okay, now I wanted to talk about all that to give us a context of chapter 4 within the confession. I just spent a lot of time talking about chapter 4 of the confession without actually talking about chapter 4 of the confession. But let's do that now. So if you have your sheet in front of you or a confession, turn to chapter 4. But I wanted to talk about that because I wanted to give us um, what I've uh, sort of thought about and phrased as this. Pro I probably heard this somewhere, but I'm just going to say I thought about it. Um, I wanted to give us confessional presuppositions when we come to chapter 4. I want to give us a lens through which we view chapter 4 rightly. Okay. <clears throat> okay, so let's look first at paragraph one. So let me have someone, if you wouldn't mind, reading paragraph one for us. Uh, in the beginning, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was pleased to create or make the world and all things in it, both visible and invisible, in a six-day period, and all very good. 
He did this to manifest the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. Okay. Thank you, Jeremy. <clears throat> so, right at the beginning of chapter 4, we see a Trinitarian creator. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all active, we'll use that word, all active in creation. Now, if you just read Genesis 1, you probably won't walk away saying, oh yeah, it's clear. I see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all actively involved in creation. Um, but it's more helpful actually to allow all of scripture to speak to any one part of scripture. That's how we build a good a biblical theology. We allow all of scripture to speak to any one part. So let's ask ourselves, what else can we find in scripture that gives us more data or more clear data on the doctrine of creation? Now we see in Genesis 1 clear evidence that the spirit is involved in creation. He's hovering over the face of the deep. But we can also go to the New Testament, which shines more light on the subject of creation. So let's go to John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 3. This is actually one of the um, scriptural, I don't, use, I, don't, I don't like to use the term scriptural proofs, but it's one of the scriptures that the confession points to um, as it deals with creation. <clears throat> so let me have someone read John 1, 1 to 3 for us. You can read here or you can read in your translation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. Okay, thank you. And the ESV says, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So that tells us more clearly that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, was active in creation too. Now the confession gives us a scriptural evidence for each person of the Trinity being involved in creation, but how we think about the involvement of each person of the Trinity in creation is important too. So this is what I mean. <clears throat> we shouldn't think about God, the Father, Son, and Spirit involved in creation like clocking in and clocking out. So when the Bible talks about the spirit hovering over the face of the deep, we shouldn't think that the spirit was clocked in and the father and the son were clocked out while the spirit was sort of doing his, his work, right? <clears throat> the, father, the father wasn't saying, oh, I'll do this and then son, you'll do that. And then the spirit, you'll do that. And uh, uh, the other two persons of the Trinity sort of taking a break while the one is doing his work. If you think about creation as a pie chart, um, it's not divided in three ways, as if one-third was the Father, one-third was the Son, and one-third was the Spirit. The confession already talked about this, that God is one divine essence in three persons, undivided but distinguished in personal uh, relations. So when we talk about God in creation, we have to make sure that we don't divide him. Our language is important when we talk about this. We have to make sure we don't divide him. No person of the Trinity is ever acting in creation divided from the other persons of the Godhead. <clears throat> so when we talk about God in creation, we have to make sure, again, that we don't divide him. The description of their work, so when the Bible uses language that talks about uh, the work of the Trinity in creation or uh, the work of a certain person of the Trinity in creation, 
Um, it's communicating uh, to us uh, distinction, but they're never operating independently, right? <clears throat> because God is one. So a quote from Richard Barcellus, and he says this, when the Bible speaks of creation and attributes a certain work of creation to the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, it's saying God created. It's saying God created. But the Bible will sometimes attribute a work of creation to certain person, a certain person within the Trinity, to highlight something about that divine person. But it does this without denying the undivided works of the Trinity. Very helpful. So again, our language with how we talk about this is important. Um, and we want to make sure that we're not talking about creation or communicating um, something about God in creation that paints this picture of God being uh, divided because God is one. So we have to maintain the simplicity of God, that God is a simple God. He's not composed of parts. He's a simple being. <clears throat> So this paragraph in chapter four of the confession also um, is assuming something that it doesn't talk about in detail. So as you read through the confession, even on these specific paragraphs and points, it's not um, expounding um, infallibly or in 100% uh, thoroughly every aspect of the paragraph. Some things it says and some things it assumes. <clears throat> and another thing that it assumes that it doesn't say here in this paragraph that it says that it's assuming that God was pleased to create or make the world and all things in it out of nothing. It doesn't say that, but it's assuming it. <clears throat> and I'm assuming that it's assuming that uh, because of what we see again in the Baptist catechism, that many confession. If you don't have a Baptist catechism, I encourage you to pick one up. Um, they're actually, you can print one online for free. Benjamin Keach's Baptist catechism is online for free, the PDF format or you can buy one. It's very helpful to read alongside the confession, very helpful. So again, I'm saying that I'm assuming that this chapter um, assumes that God made all things out of nothing, and I get that from the Baptist Catechism. So in the Baptist Catechism, question 12 asks, what is the work of creation? And the answer it gives is this. The work of creation is God making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. So I think it's safe to uh, see the, the catechism as a good counterpart for the confession because um, a lot of these men who signed the confession um, and, and edited the confession were involved in the Baptist catechism. So I think they're meant to be studied sort of hand in hand. Will you spell Kish? It's K-E-A-C-H. Benjamin Keish, K-E-A-C-H. <clears throat> so the Baptist Catechism is helpful again in bringing out something that the confession itself doesn't talk about explicitly. Now the confession probably doesn't say out of nothing in this paragraph because of what follows right after. It says, in a six-day period. So the confession is, um, is everything that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. So uh, I guess I, I should phrase it like this. Um, is everything that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 created in the span of six days? 
is everything that we see there created in the span of six days. <clears throat> and then another question is, if that is true, we would agree with that, is everything in that six-day period created out of nothing? Is everything in that six-day period created ex nihilo, out of nothing, from nothing? That's a good question to ask, I think. <clears throat> and the answer is no. Don't stone me, let me explain. <laughs> the answer is no. And how do we know that? Because the crown of God's creation, man, was made from what? Out of the dust of the ground. In other words, man was made from something that was already there. Adam wasn't created ex nihilo. He wasn't created out of nothing. Genesis 2.7 says that he was formed from the dust of the ground. So some things in the beginning were created out of nothing, ex nihilo, and other things were created from what was created out of nothing. In other words, some things were created from previous matter or previous material that was already there. And the Reformed theologians refer to this as active and passive creation. Active creation refers to ex nihilo, and passive creation was formed from previous material. So again, an important distinction, an important distinction, active and passive creation. So <clears throat> I wanted to spend actually more time um, in this paragraph. I'm talking about the six-day period, but I won't be able to. But if you pick up Aldrin's modern exposition of the 1689 Confession, you can read his thoughts on that, and I think they're good, and I agree with them. Basically, he says, uh, that Genesis should be read historically and understood historically, and that it was created in a literal six-day period. He talks about Exodus 20, and I'm trying to make this point and prove his point. He talks about Exodus 20 and the reference to the Sabbath in Exodus 20 pointing back to creation. In other words, he says, God himself points to the Sabbath as extremely important and perpetual then God points to his own work and rest in creation to confirm that. The confession assumes a literal six-day creation. <clears throat> okay? And in assuming a literal six-day creation, he's saying that, and I agree with him, that it's not unlike God to, to do this. It's not unlike God to create something with the appearance of age. Jesus Christ did it with wine. God did it with Adam. Both were only seconds old, but had the appearance of age. Adam didn't look like a baby. The wine didn't taste like it was just made. Something was created, <clears throat> and it had the appearance of age. And that's his sort of He's trying to prove his point, and I agree with him. Okay, let's jump down to paragraph number two. Paragraph number two. <clears throat> uh, someone mind reading that for us? Whoever has it in front of them. Uh, after God had made all the other creatures, he created humanity. He made the male and female, rational and immortal souls, Thereby making them suited that life lived unto God for which they were created. They're made in the image of God, being endowed 
Thank you, Scott. So the middle of this paragraph is what I want to focus on. And the part I'm specifically talking about is this. They were made in the image of God, being endowed with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. They had the law of God written on their hearts and the power to fulfill it. So being made in the image of God, when we say that, that doesn't mean that God has a head, two arms, two legs, and two feet. When we say in the image of God, that's not what we're saying. It's not a one-to-one comparison. In his image or as his image means we reflect. God is not the same as man and man is not the same as God. We have to maintain, again, that creator-creature distinction. You'll hear that a lot in uh, Reformed theology and when when we're talking about creation. um, Creator-creature distinction. God is not man, man is not God. A part of this image bearing means that God communicated or gave to mankind what we call God's communicable attributes. God's communicable attributes. And we see some of these communicable attributes listed in the paragraph. Communicable attributes is another way of saying shared attributes. Okay? And we see some of those attributes listed in this paragraph. The words knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Now, if we keep chapter four, this is important, if we keep chapter four in its context and remember what the confession already said and what the confession is about to say, we see that it's focusing on creation and specifically Adam and Eve, not everybody. And I'll try and prove that point. So here's the context. Mankind in their state before the fall reflected these attributes of knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness as image bearers which is what made them suited, you'll see in that paragraph, suited to the life lived unto God, as the paragraph says. Animals didn't have that, but Adam and Eve did. So this phrase, uh, knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness is actually in Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4.24. Let me have someone read Colossians 3.10 for us. You wouldn't mind. It will put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then Ephesians 4.24. Put on the new self, created after the of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay. So, thank you. So, both passages speak of uh, the image of God as being in knowledge in Colossians 3.10. And, and righteousness and true holiness in Ephesians 4.24. So Adam and Eve had knowledge of all that God required from them and all they needed to know. And they were put in the garden with that knowledge. So the confession says that they also had actual righteousness. Ecclesiastes 7.29, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright and they have sought out many devices. So they were created upright. They had true holiness, meaning actual holiness. They practiced righteousness, and they were truly or actually holy in thought, word, and deed. Now, righteousness and holiness assumes 
what? It assumes some standard. It assumes some law. The confession says that in addition to the image of God, righteousness and true holiness, they were also, and I love this language, suited or fit for their life unto God because they had the law of God written on their hearts. And of course, it's not talking about literally writing on the physical heart of Adam and Eve, but God did literally place in the heart, um, put place in their very nature, the constitution of Adam and Eve, his moral law, his standards of what is right and what is wrong. <clears throat> so people will sort of look at Adam and Eve and say, um, and probably assume uh, too much and say, well, they, they didn't know. They couldn't have known that they shouldn't have eaten you know, the, from the tree that God placed in the midst of the garden. But again, the confession affirms this, and I agree, that they had everything they needed and they knew. God placed them in the garden with the knowledge and capacity to obey. <clears throat> So again, they had the knowledge of God, they had it written, they had the moral law written on their hearts, the standard of right and wrong. So Romans 1.32 says, though they, knew God, they, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. <clears throat> so the they in this verse is talking about all of the nations. And so all the nations know God's decree or law. And then Romans 12, you can see that. Somebody mind reading that for us? I'm sorry, Romans 2, 14 to 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts concerning it. Thank you, uh, Kareen. Uh, I forgot Sunday school. <laughs> um, okay, so if the moral law is written on all hearts of men after the fall, it must mean that it was written on the hearts of Adam and Eve too. That's simply making that assertion. So they had the law in their heart, but they also had the power to fulfill it. What does that mean? The law was written on their heart, they knew it, loved it, and had the ability to fulfill it and to do so perfectly. God created his creation, Adam and Eve, very good. In other words, God created them with a nature to function in perfect harmony with the obedience that God required of them in the garden. He didn't set them up to <laughs> fail. He actually set them up to succeed. They had what they needed. They weren't lacking what they needed to obey. They had, the confession says, the power to fulfill it. So although they had the ability uh, to fulfill and obey, they were yet under, and I'm quoting from the paragraph again, <clears throat> the middle, they were yet under a possibility of transgression, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. What does that mean? <clears throat> 
It means the possibility of Adam and Eve disobeying proves that they were being tested. And obedience, Adam showing his love for God, had real reward, and disobedience or failure had real consequences. Now, some of you probably are listening, but maybe you've clocked out and stopped listening because you are thinking, which is a good thing. I like that you're thinking. And this is what you're probably thinking. You're probably wondering how in the world Adam and Eve, who were made upright in true righteousness and holiness, how in the world were they still able to sin? What in the world has happened in there? <laughs> uh, and that's a good and legitimate question. And um, I'll, I'll answer in this way. <clears throat> I won't be able to answer fully, but I'll try and answer in this way. So the Bible gives us uh, data. It gives us uh, categories that we have to uh, use when we're thinking about this, this question. It tells us that God is holy. It tells us that God has decreed. And it tells us that God is not the author of sin. And those, uh, that, that clear data the Bible gives us has to help us interpret uh, some of the unclear or less clear aspects of uh, the Bible. For instance, this, this question. We know that God did not make Adam and Eve sin. We know that God's not the author of sin. We also know that God has decreed in eternity past that this would happen. We also know that God is holy. So whatever conclusion we come to about what happened here, make sure that you have it or you have the right categories of thinking about what happened, lest we blaspheme and attribute to God something that he is not, lest we say God is the author of sin. Now, since there's a smarter person than I am, believe it or not, I'm not that smart, I get my stuff from other people. Um, I'm gonna let Stephen Charnock, who has some helpful thoughts on this, sort of help us to answer this question. <clears throat> Stephen Charnock says, he was a um, 16th century um, English Puritan, uh, one of the Westminster divines, smart guy. This is what he says in trying to answer this question. How did Adam and Eve sin? God never willed sin by his, per, by his preceptive will. He was never, so God never, it's never, God never commands someone to sin. He was never founded upon or produced by any word of his as the creation was made by his word. He never said, let there be sin under the heavens, as he said, let there be water under the heavens. Nor does he will it by infusing any habit of it or stirring up inclinations to it. He says, no, God tempts no man, James 1.13. Nor does he will it by his approving will. It is detestable to him. So he maintains what the Bible says that God is holy. It is detestable to him. Nor ever can he be otherwise. Yet... The will of God in some, sort, um, in, in some sort concurrent with sin. He does not properly will it, but he wills not to hinder it. To will sin as sin would be an unanswerable blemish on God. But to will to permit it in order for good is the glory of his wisdom. Sin, 
would never have peeped up in its, I'm sorry, sin would never have peeped up its head unless there had been some decree of God concerning it. And there would have been no decree concerning it had not God intended to bring good and glory out of it. God wills the permission of sin. He does not positively will sin, but he positively wills to permit it. And though he does not approve sin, yet he approves of the act of his will whereby he permits sin. This is, is weighty. Though God hates sin as being against his holiness, yet he did not hate the permission of sin as being subservient by the immensity of his wisdom and of his glory. Although, this is what I, I think he's saying. Although God eternally decreed that Adam and Eve would sin, God is not himself active in the sinning of Adam and Eve. Now, I confess <laughs> what I'm saying, I believe, but I don't fully understand. Um, I believe that God is holy, that God is sovereign, that God decrees. Um, but how in God's infinite is wisdom this works out, I, can, I think we can try to apprehend, but we, can't, well, we won't be able to fully comprehend. Um, but again, I think Sharnak is saying, God, it pleased God to will that sin would happen, but God is never and can never be the author of sin or actively involved in it. If you want to read more on that, <laughs> you can. <laughs> I'm still trying to read more on it, um, and I will because I, I do want to, to better understand that. But again, maintain the creature-creator distinction. God has given us these things. We search them out, but never assume that we fully understand it. But search them out. You should. <clears throat> A question. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so I think that, that's a good question. I think that they're almost um, synonymous, righteousness and holiness. Um, I don't think they're in there. There may be. I haven't read much on just from uh, confessional commentaries or whatnot or the, the editors of, of the confession on any meaningful distinction between the two. Um, there may be, but I think it's just saying that um, they were given in their capacity or uh, in their constitution the ability to be um, approved by God. And actually, I'm going to talk about this a little bit when we get to paragraph three. They were given the ability to be um, approved by God to uh, fulfill uh, the righteousness um, that God required of them. They had that in them. And holiness is, I think, another way of saying that that was was possible. So they were given righteousness, holiness, and knowledge, all sort of attributes that suited them to fulfill what God gave them to do in the garden. Um, but I think paragraph three may better help, help answer that. But again, I haven't read on if there's any specific or great distinction between um, righteousness, holiness, and knowledge, um, apart from the purpose that it was given to them in the garden to, to be righteous and to obey. Um, Okay, so <clears throat> I got a few minutes. So let's look at, okay, Dean, and then we'll go back to Pito. Uh, kind of piggyback off that. So you mentioned God gave man the power to overcome sin. 
the power to fulfill, yes. So Adam had, did he have power to fulfill the law completely? So Adam had, he had the law written on his heart because again, so Adam was made, he was made upright. So Adam wasn't created um, a, a he, he wasn't created under the influence and effects of sin in the same way that we are. So he was created upright. He had true knowledge, true righteousness and holiness. But I think the question that we, we may be getting at, at here is when it comes down to sin and the transgression of God's law not to eat from the knowledge of good and evil, the connection between uh, Adam being made upright and his ability to fall in that way, because he did fall um, in that way. But there's a distinction there, too, between God's moral law written on the heart of Adam and God speaking special revelation concerning not eating from the tree, which paragraph three addresses. So I think maybe getting to that may, may help. If, if, Adam, if Adam truly had the power to fulfill the law completely, we wouldn't need Christ, right? If Adam, if Adam had the ability to fulfill the law completely, we wouldn't need Christ. That's a good question. Um, it's more than the What's, he, did, he had the ability, but he, he, he did not execute that. how he did Right. So, so I, think that, um, I think that it's helpful. So seeing what Christ accomplished helps us to better see what Adam did not accomplish. So I think your question is, how much time do I have? I want to make sure that I don't get, because I, I, we can get off on this and talk about it for a while. Um, let me do this, because I know myself. Let me get through paragraph three, and then we'll we'll talk about it more after. Because that's a good question, but I think paragraph three may shed more light. And if you have any other questions, we can talk about it after. Um, I said I would go to you, Pito, so real quick. (laughs) Okay. So let's let's work through uh, paragraph three, and then maybe it'll shed some more light on this. So let me have someone read paragraph three. Okay, thank you. So, paragraph three starts by saying that Adam and Eve had the written law on their hearts, but they also received a special and specific command. Adam and Eve's probation or testing is proved through God's command to Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's, this probationary period is proved through this command Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the law that God communicated to Adam through special revelation, which would be the context for his probation or testing. The law written on our first parent's heart was eternal, but the command to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was an external law. It was particular. It was specific. So some theologians refer to that as a positive law. The speaking of God, the special revelation from God to Adam 
in that command not to eat from the tree became the ground of his covenant with Adam. And of course, this time of probation that was based on them obeying what God told them to do assumes that God actually communicated it to them and that they understood it. And how do we know that they understood the command? Well, Genesis. And the woman said to the serpent, we may not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So God's revelation was understood. It may have been skewed, but it was in there communicating it back, but it was understood. But notice, it wasn't just a command saying, don't eat, but it was the punishment for disobeying the command that was communicated, that lest you die. So God's punishment was just. And Adam and Eve were in the garden given what they needed to fulfill, to, um, to, to fulfill and to obey. But this command of God, this command, don't eat from that tree, became the context of the probation in which Adam having the ability, having the ability to sin and the ability not to sin, chose to sin. So God's punishment of Adam and, uh, was, was, was a just punishment. Uh, we, look at, we sort of look around and we see the world and we see the effects of sin and we say, man, that's, that was harsh. Adam, all he did was take a bite from some fruit. Um, and we say, man, why did God have to carry out this punishment that way? Look at the chaos in the world. Um, that's, that was harsh. But we should probably look at, we should, I should say, look at the world and the sin and the corruption in the world and say, not God was harsh, but God is holy. He's holy, holy, holy. The transgression of God's law was... Um, and the punishment of that transgression was right and fitting because how holy God is. As creatures, we can't look out and say, and put God on trial and say, man, you were harsh for doing that, Lord. It was just a little sin. We can only ever align with what the Bible says of God himself and say, man, you are holy, Lord. Look at what you think about sin. That's the right Perspective. That's the right lens through which to view the chaos and sin in the world. But moving on and closing here. Then paragraph three says, as long as they obeyed this command, they were happy in their communion with God. So in the pre-fall state, they were happy. And specifically, they were happy in their communion with God. The only truly happy state for Adam and Eve as our first parents and humanity was and still is communion with God. And creation is the stage for the glory of God and the gospel. And that's what the gospel is doing. It's bringing us back into right communion and enjoyment of God. And God's infinite and eternal decree, this is how he is determined to glorify himself and creation is the stage on which he has chosen to manifest that glory. All right. Creation isn't giving to God glory that he doesn't already have. God is not swelling up in his glory as creation gives him glory. Creation is manifesting the glory 
that God already has. We get swelled up when people give us glory, right? We get big heads and think that it's, it's making us bigger than who we are. Never so with God. He cannot be over glorified. Just made that up to make sense. And although all things are not equally clear to us, because he is creator, infinitely wise, and we are creatures finite with limited knowledge, we humble ourselves and ascribe to God the praise due to his name, who are a part, or sorry, the praise due to him as we who are a part of his creation manifests his glory. Okay? So that's what I have for us in chapter four of creation. 